You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. Well, this morning I have the privilege of introducing my friend and my mentor who's going to be bringing the word this morning, Pastor Glenn Burris. Forty years ago, uh, Glenn and Debbie came to Cornelius Foursquare Church uh, and were pastors of the church for 12 years. Um, from there, became a district supervisor, then a general supervisor. The past eight years, has been serving our church family, the Foursquare family, as the president of our movement. And through his phenomenal leadership, not only have we seen uh, a reformation happen within our church family, but we are positioned, I believe, for future growth, impacting not only the United States, but the nations. A lot of it due to uh, his excellent leadership. So through his t- uh, 12 years being here at Grace Covenant, not only did the church grow, but he had the vision to see this piece of property. Actually, we purchased this piece of property that we're on under his leadership uh, that has positioned us now to have this beautiful facility here reaching out to the Lake Norman community. But Glenn is a phenomenal leader, has a heart for God, a heart to shepherd God's people, and you're going to be blessed by the word that he brings this morning. Would you welcome Pastor Glenn Burst Jr. as he comes this morning? Thank you, Carol. Good morning. I bring greetings from my wife, Debbie. We've been on an itinerary, and uh, we're leaving in about a week for another two-week trip, so she's uh, managing the home front, and So she sends her uh, greetings to you today. Wow, Pharaoh, when I saw the uh, picture of the Lincoln property, it reminded me of a picture I think you've got in your office or you've got somewhere that showed this piece of property right here before anything was around at all. And um, um, I think it was amazing what God allowed us to do and gave us favor and I so love Farrell and Charlotte and their gift to not only this congregation, this community, but to our life as well. And your worship team uh, at convention knocked it out of the ballpark. So uh, you just got to know that people love them. And they were uh, one of the hits of Washington. So, well, Debbie and I have the privilege now of having four grandkids. They're four, four and under. We took two of our four-year-olds to, to Gatlinburg. Debbie and I risked that. And uh and we survived, and so did they. Uh, my first picture on Facebook was uh, in front of the ice cream stand at midnight and saying, don't tell the parents. Um, <laughs> not only are they breaking curfew, but they're, it was just... Th- in fact, they both want to come live with us because they say there's no rules at your house. We, in fact, the, my, the other day, my four-year-old grandson said to his dad, I wish Gigi lived across the street because that's where I'd go right now if I could. Avery FaceTimes me a lot. She's just four, but uh, the other day she FaceTimed me. She said, Grandpa, is Jesus God's brother? I said, no, Avery, Jesus is actually God's son. She said, okay, and she got off the screen, and her mom came on. She said, that's what I told her, but she said, I'm calling Grandpa. He's the expert in our family. (laughs) Well, our time in Cornelius was just one of the funnest times of our life. We raised our kids here. They went to Cornelius Elementary, um, North Mech High School, and went on and graduated from Chapel Hill. And I'll never still remember Mary Keesler coming to me after a Sunday school class. I think Josh was four. And uh, she'd asked the kids what was their favorite song. She got Deep and Wide, Jesus Loves Little Children. From the pastor's son, she got Another One Bites the Dust. That was his favorite song. 
I got my uh, first training as a president here. I, Debbie had an after-school daycare, so occasionally I would pick up the kids and take them to the sporting events. Uh, I joined the cheerleading moms club um, because all the others were moms. And so eventually they elected me as the president of the cheerleading moms club. So that was my first practice at, uh, at being the president. I want to talk to you today about perspective, the power of perspective. Not anything that I think is more valuable than the vantage point that you see life from. In other words, are your opinion, your um, your beliefs, your convictions, because you operate not out of uh, you really generally operate out of your convictions, not necessarily things you say, uh, but out of your convictions. I I love this short um, scripture in Acts where it talks about Philip the evangelist. And it's said about him. Because what we know is our perspective, our opinions can land us in trouble. And if we're wrong about those, if we're wrong about our opinion or perspective, and we're passionate about that opinion and perspective, that is wrong. We can actually be very dangerous. I remember uh, this great passage in Acts, and I love this, and I hope that it would be said about you and me. It said about Philip that when he came to the city, there was joy there. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? When Philip showed up, there was joy. It also said in the same chapter about a lady named Tabitha who was a quilt maker for the poor. And it said when she died, people gathered around her bed and wept. So here we have two interesting characters. One seems to be more uh, full-time in ministry. The other was just uh, uh, she had ministry in her own right, but she served out of her home. When Philip was present, people were happy. When Tabitha was absent, people were sad. Um, Let's hope that the opposite isn't true, that people are happy when we're here, uh, excuse me, happy when we're gone, and uh, sad when we're present. Um, Probably the group that stands out the most to me in the New Testament, and I want to read a passage of Scripture this morning, that indicates a perspective that became prevalent. Jesus encountered it when he came. Now, the interesting thing is they started out with very pure motives. They started out by studying the law. They, they wanted to be people who um, communicated the law. The problem was they became kind of the Gestapo. They, they wanted to make sure that you were obeying the law. And I've discovered something about leadership over 40 years. People much rather... People follow very uh, more intently when they are committed than when they follow out of compliance. When, when people feel a level of conviction about something, it's very different, their level of followership, their level of influence. But when people feel coerced, when they feel under some restraint, and it's what Jesus encountered when he came, the religious leaders. In fact, a third of the narratives about Jesus involved these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. They were all people who felt it was their duty to make sure that everybody followed the rules. I would just tell you today that we actually um, are invited to be part of a kingdom where rules aren't what drives it, but relationship does. In fact, the Bible says, um, how do you know someone's a disciple? Pretty simple, that they love God and love people. I mean, it doesn't get much more simpler than that. 
They'll know you're my disciples because of your love one toward another. So when it comes to this kingdom, which is, by the way, an invisible kingdom, it's driven more by relationship than it is by rules. If the law could have saved us, it it would have, but grace came along. I want to read you a powerful passion of scripture in Matthew chapter 9, and it shows you the vantage point of the Pharisees as opposed to the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 9, beginning with verse 1. Back in the boat, Jesus and his disciples recrossed the sea to Jesus' hometown. They were hardly out of the boat when some men carried a paraplegic on a stretcher and sat down in front of them. Jesus, impressed by their bold belief, said to the paraplegic, Now you're thinking, if you're in the crowd, you're thinking, okay, what we want Jesus to say is, you're healed, or take up your bed and walk. But that's not what he says. What he says is, cheer up, son, I forgive your sins. That shocked the Pharisees. Now, why did it shock them? Because now you have to go back to perspective. Their belief and opinion was that only who had the power to forgive sins? Only God. So now he is claiming to be God, which for them became blasphemy because what he said didn't work with their particular screen. It was, it was uh, out of character to what they felt should have been said. It was inappropriate. And so they said, that's blasphemy. The religious scholars whispered. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said, why this gossipy whispering? Which do you think, I love this, which do you think is simpler to say, I forgive your sins or get up and walk? Now he puts them in a very uh, peculiar situation. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the son of man and authorized to do either or both. At this, he turned to the paraplegic and said, get up, take up your bed and go home. And the man did it. The crowd was awestruck, amazed and pleased that God had authorized Jesus to work among them this way. This is old, so old. Some of you will probably think, oh, Glenn, I've heard that before. But I, I love the sermon where the guy is preaching and he said, you know, God opened the Red Sea and three million of people walked through on dry ground. And some little lady in the back said, praise the Lord. And the pastor stopped his sermon. He goes, excuse me, I've been there. And where they crossed was only 18 inches of water. So it was pretty important they went across, but it wasn't that big deal. And she said, praise the Lord. He said, what are you saying now? He said that God could drown a whole army in 18 inches of water. For her, it didn't matter how deep the water was. For her, the important thing was God did a miracle. That was her vantage point. We want to argue the points of the law. Verse 9, passing along, Jesus saw a man at his work collecting taxes, which you know would have been the lowest of all occupations. They were unscrupulous. His name was Matthew. And Jesus said, come along with me. Jesus is inviting him to be one of his inner 12. Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. Probably because that's all Matthew knew. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, (laughs) say this kind of company, this kind of company, Jesus got a reputation of being a friend of sinners. And this is part of the reason he got that uh, label. They had a fit when they saw him keeping this kind of company, and they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus, overhearing them, shot back, Who needs a doctor, the healthy 
or the sick. Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy and not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Wow. The power of perspective. I've got four simple points this morning, and I've, I've got a, a picture with each one of them that I'd like to review with you today. The first point I'd like to make this morning is what you see physically. What you see, uh, even the first concept oftentimes you have in your mind. What you see in com- pales in comparison to what you don't see. What you see pales in comparison to what you don't see. I'm going to ask them to show the um, Kentsuji art from Japan. I, I love this. When someone showed this to me several years ago and explained the meaning, see, for most of us, brokenness, uh, if something's broken, it means it's worth less. We want perfection. We There's something that drives us in our culture that oftentimes sees brokenness as weakness. In Japan, what they started years ago was they took broken pottery, filled it with gold, and now the broken pottery filled with gold is worth more than the original piece. Could I suggest to you today that when God gets a hold of broken people and fills them with his life and his presence and his hope, they're worth more than they were before they were broken. In fact, I would suggest to you today that God can't work very well with unbroken people. I've actually never met anybody that God used mightily that at some point in their life weren't broken. Either broken by circumstance, broken by life itself, but all of a sudden, God floods in this life, and, and what appeared to us as a disaster, God turned into a blessing. David Wilkerson saw it on the streets of New York when he met the gangs there, and he knew only that God had called him there. He would eventually meet a gang member named Nicky Cruz, and um, encountered him, almost lost his life. But in introducing Nikki Cruz to the gospel, Nikki Cruz became one of the most powerful evangelists on the streets of New York, and thousands of gang members came to Christ. For you see, if David Wilkerson had only saw Nikki Cruz as a gang member instead of someone made in the image of God, who was broken in his life, terribly unhappy, but bound. And that's the eyes that God wants us to see this world through, maybe broken in many places. And regardless of who you would take that attitude about, it could be a neighbor, could be a politician, could be whomever, for you to see the possibility that if God adds his life to them, something radically changes. I was on a flight to Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and uh, it's just a little puddle jumper. Every, I mean, you know these kind of flights. Everybody's in first class. <laughs> so I'm in row one, which is not all that impressive. And a guy comes in just before the door closes, and he's drunk. He's belligerent. He's about 41, 42. Uh, he was uh, cussing every two or three words, and he was just, he was a mess. In fact, they had already announced they weren't serving drinks on the flight, and I was kind of thankful for that because I figured like he had had enough, although by the end of the flight, I was wanting them to serve me something um, (laughs) just so that I could tolerate this conversation. 
he, he just went all over the map. And finally he pulled out his iPhone and he said, Glenn, I want to show you the kind of girls I'm meeting. And he showed me this Italian girl and this German girl. And all of a sudden he goes, I got a bar up in New Jersey. There's 10 girls to every guy. And if you just come up with me, I'll introduce you to a lot of them. And I, I just smiled. I pulled out my iPhone and showed a picture of Debbie and I. And I said, this is my wife. He grabbed my phone. He looked at her and he said, could I have her number? <laughs> now, I've been shocked by a few things, but that shocked me. So here I am sitting beside a guy who's drunk, belligerent, cussing. Now he wants to meet my wife. (laughs) So we're just talking, and all of a sudden he said, you know, this is the worst day of my life. I said, really? He said, yeah, I got a call early this morning at work that my 62-year-old father, whom I don't have a relationship, died in the middle of the night. And that's why I'm going to Rhinelander. The last time I was here was right after my divorce. I haven't seen my kid. He said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have nobody to help me. So he just started unpacking a lot of garbage in his life. I, I don't even have a place. I don't even live anywhere. I'm on contract, uh, still working on Hurricane Sandy, and I just live wherever I'm contracted. Make good money. Spend it all. So we just started talking, and all of a sudden I found myself counseling him in some areas, and pretty soon he turned to me and he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a nonprofit consultant. Because <laughs> at that point, he still wasn't sober enough for me to actually. <laughs> I didn't lie to him. I just didn't. He said, Are you a pastor? I said, Yes, I am. All of a sudden, a deeper well of his life opened. And the pain came flooding out. I mean, all of this in 45 minutes. Plane lands, we get up, his phone rings as he's exiting the plane. He goes, yeah, thank you, this is the worst day of my life. But I met a pastor on this flight, and I think it's going to be okay. See, I don't know about you, but there is, a, there is the perspective that we gain in a certain time frame. And having no idea of what life may unfold, what may happen out of this brokenness. And time and time again, I read the scriptures enough to know, hold on, don't draw a conclusion just yet. For the God that you serve oftentimes is already manufacturing a solution even before you see one. Secondly, the best perspective is never limited to time and space. I just love this. God, please hear this. God sees your past. He sees your present. And He sees your... And for, for Him, it's, it's the same timeline. He, some of you are stuck in the past. Injuries. Or maybe there were good times. But for whatever reason, you constantly look backwards. Some of you are overwhelmed by the present and to the point that you can't really see that a different future could unfold. You know, I was thinking the other day, because I do, I'm involved in uh, ministry around the world and uh, just wanted to share with you something I thought was pretty cool. We've never counted China as a nation 
in terms of what Foursquare reaches. We've had missionaries there for 60 years. In fact, we have 17 nations, 17 Foursquare nations that have a missions presence in China, but we can't tell you who they are. We can't even formally connect them. So we just have ways that we we communicate and we talk. And so two years ago, I asked our missionary who's over that area, how many Foursquare churches do we have in China? We've never even counted it. And I, I get the reality. He said, I don't know how many we have. And I said, well, find out. He said, it'll be tough. I said, okay, find out. So for two years, he's been interviewing the leaders of these different networks. Come to find out we have five different networks of churches in China. It's just how life works over there. And he came to me a couple months ago and he said, Glenn, I, 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 I only have a floor. I don't really have a ceiling. I said, that's okay. Just give it to me. I'm not asking for something I can publish, but just tell me. He said, Glenn, and we did some difficult scrutiny of all this, but after 60 years and 17 nations involved in China, we have over 15,000 four-square churches in China. We've never even counted one. Maybe the fastest growing nation of Christians in the world, and in the 1950s, communism moved in, an ideology, a perspective about life where there is no God. Atheism is at the core of communism. Now, if you and I were strategizing about mission effectiveness, we wouldn't have kicked the missionaries out, we wouldn't have closed the churches, we wouldn't have outlawed the Bibles, and we wouldn't have jailed the church leaders. But that's exactly what happened. But the seed of the life of the kingdom went deep because it was life. And today it's one of the fastest growing Christian mission nations in the world. Why? Because you can't stamp out the life of God. You can destroy its systems. You can take care of its external presence. But you can never destroy the life of God in a nation. I think we should rejoice. And that perspective that God's not limited. He's not limited to our plans. He's not limited to our strategies. There's a picture I want you to see real quick. It's called Simeon's Moment. It's a painting by Ron Diciani, an, an Italian guy. It's a very expensive painting. And, and even the prints are several hundred dollars worth. This is the prophet that held Jesus. A picture of the prophet that held Jesus when he came into the temple as a baby to be dedicated as a child. And you remember the Bible says that Simeon had prayed to to God, please let me see the Messiah. Somehow he knew that uh, of all the prophecies of the hundreds of years of prophecies that the Messiah had been born. And he said, God, I just want to see him and then I can die. And to his amazement, he's at the temple. The Christ child comes in and he grabs this baby. Now, what Ron DeCiani has picked up, and if you see it in the backdrop of the picture, is he's holding the present, but he sees the future. Because what Simeon declares as he's holding the baby is he's saying, this is the light of the Gentiles. Actually, he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your heart. Just understand, this baby... Is God's answer to the world, but it will not come without pain. I love this idea that God already knows the future. He's already there, actually, which is why we don't have to fear the future. Would you say amen? We don't have to fear the future because God is already there. Amen. He knows the future. Thirdly, change your perspective and change your outcome. 
change the, the lens that you're looking through, and you'll change the outcome. When Debbie and I first got into ministry, we've been in the ministry 42 years, in our first year, I took Debbie to counseling because I knew she needed to be fixed. So um, it didn't take long before we were in counseling to find out I was the one that needed to be fixed and, and not Debbie. But it was an interesting perspective as a 22-year-old. We argued a lot. We, she's a strong-willed child. We were both, she's the first child of five, I'm the first child of three. And uh, we were both very strong-willed. And I thought if I got her to counseling, maybe there'd only be one strong-willed one left. And, uh, and I found out there is. It's her. I mean, she's the, she's kind of the boss now. No, not, not just kidding. But it was interesting at that moment of what God did to change my perspective that has given us 43 years of an amazing marriage. I, I had an image that, I don't know if you've heard me mention this before, but I, I think it's interesting that our nation began with a letter to King George. And the, the letter said to him, if you've seen John Adams' um, HBO series on the Founding Fathers, we sent King George a letter. This, the colonies were organizing, and, and they sent the king a letter, and they said, could we talk? We've we got some issues, and, and we think it'd be good if we had some representation. King George wrote a letter back and said, all traitors will be shot. So there was a moment, I just want you to see this, a moment in time where the person with the most authority had a chance to build a bridge, and he built a wall instead of building a bridge which led to the second letter from the Continental Congress. The second letter begins with, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary, basically for one people to separate themselves from another. That refusal to, to lead well, that refusal to see life from a different perspective, initiated a revolution. But what's sad, that's, that's a governmental thing, but what's sad is when that mindset strikes us as believers or strikes us as, as even a religious organization. William Tyndale's only crime was that he took the Bible and he translated it into English so every one of you could, could read it today. If you know English and you can read the Bible, you have William Tyndale to thank for that. And you know what his reward was? They burned him at the stake. Because the religious leaders didn't want anyone else to know what the Bible said. They wanted to interpret it for you. Martin Luther had the same concerns when he nailed the thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Church. I'll be there on October 31st, the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, where a Catholic priest said no longer will just the select few know what God is saying. And no longer will we live in a privileged world but it belongs, this is what Martin Luther King said, everybody is a priest. It's called the priesthood of the believers. God has empowered everyone to represent Him. God has empowered everyone to speak for Him. How many realize you don't need a title to speak for God? Lastly, engage reality, but embrace possibilities. In other words, it, I understand you have to deal with the present, but allow the imagination that God's put in you, the hope that God's put in you, the, the seed of faith that God's put in you to look beyond your realities and see 
possibilities. I want to show you something today. This is the Choloteca Bridge in Honduras. Beautiful bridge built by France. You can actually go online and see the earlier pictures of the Choloteca Bridge uh, when it was surrounded by trees. And uh, the builders of this bridge didn't prepare for Hurricane Mitch. Hurricane Mitch came along, and I love this, changed the course of the river. So now we have a bridge that goes nowhere. It's a beautiful bridge, structurally sound. Problem is it doesn't go anywhere. That's what religion looks like when it's absent of the life and purpose of God. That's what any opinion looks like. That's what any perspective looks like when somehow it's disconnected from its purpose and its design. It's there. The opinions exist, but they no longer... What is it... <laughs> What is it good to say you love God if you don't love your friends or you don't love your enemies or if you don't love your neighbors? Debbie and I moved to North Atlanta and the day before we closed out, we were going by the house to measure something and we pulled up and two sheriff cars were in our driveway and I got out and the sheriff met me and he said, yes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we're buying this house tomorrow and we've already got approved. We're ready to close on. He said, well, you, you really need to call the, the current owner because uh, we just called a couple teenagers breaking in the house and they were smoking marijuana and they busted some holes in the wall and dropped the joints down behind the wall. They've really messed your house up. I thought, okay. That was the first surprise. Second surprise was to find out they live next door to me. <laughs> So now every time I leave my house, I live in a cul-de-sac, I go right by their house and I see them out in the yard, see them out by the mailbox, see them working on their cars. I've been throwing my hand up. One of them broke down on the side of the street uh, a couple months ago. I pulled over and I came back and I said, hey, could I give you a ride to your house? I just live. He said, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> see, I know that he knows what he knows. I'm just not sure he knows that I know what I know. I was at a convenience store the other day and I heard him say, hey, neighbor. I looked over and he was waving at me. You see, I don't know what God's doing, but I'm not sure I'd have ever noticed them in the way that I noticed them today and a commitment to make sure they know that I'm motivated by grace and not law, by forgiveness, not judgment. That that's the kingdom we've been invited to participate in. A kingdom that doesn't come with observation. A kingdom that's invisible. It, it's the kingdom that that God invites us to. It's it's a perspective. I was in uh, Panama City this January, and I got a chance to visit with uh, some. If you're older here this morning, you would know this name. Uh, visit with a man named Manuel Noriega. He was a general, general bad guy. He was a general, but he was a dictator in Panama, the United States. <laughs> we employed him as a CIA operative on one hand, and the other hand he's picking up drugs and selling them in the United States, and he's responsible for lots of people dying. Not a very popular guy in, in um, Panama, but our military went in and captured him. If you're old enough, you'll remember that happened, and he actually ended up in the sanctuary of a church. And we couldn't touch him there, so they blasted in music loud enough and long enough till he finally gave up. We extradited him to Florida, to prison, where three pastors from Texas went to visit him. And he eventually gave his heart to Jesus. There in one of his hearings at the courthouse, I love this story, they brought a baptism into the basement and they took him down and baptized him in the basement of this courthouse. He was extradited to France seven years ago. He was extradited to Panama 
where our Foursquare pastor became his pastor, and every Monday for seven years she's gone to, to see him, she wrote me and asked me if I'd like to visit with him. I'm the first person she's been able to get in in seven years. I sit down with him, and he tells me about all these crazy stories about Gaddafi and Pinochet, and, and then he tells me about his conversion. I met his daughter, who his whole family has come to Jesus since then. I met his uh, daughter, and she described that her dad was not doing very well. So when I left, I said, Manuel, uh, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah. He said, this guy's been in prison 28 years, probably thought of as the least approval rating in Panama of any person. And he said to me, yeah, pray that I'll get out of prison. And... um, it's one of those generic prayers that you want to get to pretty quick. I prayed. That was on a Sunday. He had a benign tumor on his brain. He wanted to get out to see his family. He's 83 years old. That was on a Sunday. Been in prison for 28 years. That next Saturday, they released him. He got to spend two months with his family. Went to the hospital, had surgery, and never came home. He's with Jesus today. I don't excuse anything that he's done at all. But I will tell you, the model that I have is a Savior hanging on the cross who turns to the thief beside him and says, it doesn't matter what's happened in in the past of your life. What happens is today. You accept me if you will respond to me. Perspective can be destructive, Perspective can be life-giving. I wear a blue band. It has nine names on it. Clementa, Cynthia, Taiwanza, Ethel, Sharonda, Daniel, Myra, Susie, and DePayne. And it finishes with a statement, only love can conquer hate. Was given that um, bracelet in... Uh, basement of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Where nine months earlier, a 21-year-old white supremacist, Dylan Roof, walked into a Wednesday night prayer Bible study and sat in a circle, really godly, caring, generous people. And because of his perspective, because of his beliefs, He took it upon himself to to judge those people. Only that the pastor's wife and young daughter hid in the bathroom of his office did they manage to escape. But I stood there in the basement of Mother Emanuel Church and with a couple other pastors, and we prayed over Pastor Manning, who's the new pastor of the church. He said, you know, no one's ever prayed for me. I've had lots of visitors here in nine months, and no one's ever prayed for me. He had taken us down to the basement. He said, I've never had anybody down here before, and we laid hands on him. Good Pentecostals. It was a sobering time. I believe today that we have the residency within us to become destructive or incredibly helpful. But it all has to do with our perspective. It all, it all has to do with whether we're submitted to a king that calls us to be righteous, just, merciful, caring. Because at the end of the day, the standards aren't set by the world. The standards are set by Him. Jesus prayed this way. 
thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. No greater words than those seven words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Should be your prayer every single day. Father, I pray for this congregation today. I I pray that in a world that is broken, and we think that the answer is to be a louder voice, or to be a voice of power. But Lord, actually you... You generated great disdain among the Pharisees because they thought if you were a king, then where is your crown? Where is your palace? And if you're a priest, where is your temple? And Jesus didn't offer them a crown. What He offered them was a towel. In my kingdom, you're called to serve. And it's out of the flow of that sacrificial life of being someone willing to not look at what you see, but being willing to say, God, what don't I see? So Lord, I pray for Grace Covenant today. I pray for every marriage in here today where perspective has been lost. I, I pray for those who are living in a sense of fear over the future of their life. I pray that what gets infused is hope. I pray for those who've landed at anger and judgment, and I pray that you would flood into them today peace and love. And somehow, Lord, when this is all over, we will surrender our perspective. Lord, in Matthew chapter 9, we didn't get there this morning, but you eventually would say to those around you who would listen, I want to give you new wine. I want to pour life into all of you, but you've got to give me something to work with. You, you just can't give me an old wineskin. You've you got to give me a new wineskin. So Lord, I don't know what that looks like today for us, but what I do know is that you want to pour new life into us. So I pray that over Grace Covenant. Pray that over every marriage. Pray that over every finance. Pray, pray that for every future of every person here. In Jesus' name we pray. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.